This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're continuing in chapter 10. Christians, true followers of Christ, should not be content just to know that they are saved, though that is essential. True Christians should long to deepen their relationship to Christ, to mature and to grow in their faith. If that's our desire, then we should be eager to accept God's spiritual growth plan laid out here in Matthew 10, among other places in the Bible. If we do so, we can trust the Lord for the result. And the results are spiritual and eternal blessings that make the troubles of this life pale in comparison. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. I'm in Matthew 10. We're going to read from verses 24 to 33. He says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher, and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who killed the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered, so do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. And that's how Jesus prepares his disciples for what they are about to face. And this is a very simple threefold outline, a threefold strategy for spiritual maturity that we can follow. So the first point in his threefold outline is acknowledge your position. That's what he's saying. Verses 24 to 25, acknowledge your position. Jesus reminds his disciples about his position as master and teacher. And therefore, they would understand their position as followers. By presenting this timeless principle, Jesus makes it clear that those instructions transcend that particular generation of disciples of Christ. So if you are a disciple of Christ, the first thing to notice and the first thing to learn today is you will never rise above your master and teacher. You're not supposed to. Jesus Christ says here to the disciples, you will never rise above your master and teacher. Elsewhere, he reminded them that not only are they going to follow in his footsteps concerning opposition and conflict, but also in influence. This is what he said, John 15, verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And if they follow my word, they will follow yours also. So he's assuring to them that, you're never going to be above Christ, but you can be like Jesus Christ, not only in opposition and in persecution and in criticism, but also in influence. And that is the blessing of being a member of the family of Christ, being a subject of the kingdom of heaven, is that we get to influence people for Christ. We don't get any credit for it because it's not about us anyway, but we get to influence people for the good. In verse 25, Jesus, therefore, encourages his disciples to pursue Christ-likeness. Be like me. 
And again, this is a universal principle. That's the reason Paul later on says in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, Be my imitators as I am an imitator of Christ. See, that's godly influence. That's godly leadership when you can tell people, follow my example, follow me as I follow Christ. Becoming like Jesus Christ, becoming like your master means receiving the same treatment that Jesus received. And that's what he's talking about, which he clarifies to the disciples by recognizing that the Pharisees have attributed to him satanic power. Remember that in Matthew 9.34, when they said, well, he casts out the demons by the ruler of demons. And here he's saying, well, if they called me Beelzebul, they're going to call you the same. In other words, they're going to second guess your motives. They're going to tell you you're operating by satanic power because they have done the same with me. So he trains them to fulfill their mission, aware of the fact that insults and accusations and assassination of character will come for those who are followers of Jesus Christ. That's not something we can avoid, church. That is to follow you if you are a faithful believer in Jesus Christ and you desire to follow Christ closely. Guess what? People are going to accuse you of all kinds of things. They're going to second-guess your motives and they are going to insult you. Why? Because they did this to him and we're not greater than our master. But here's something even more encouraging that he says in this verse. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you belong to his household. You belong to his family. See, we're not only disciples. We're not only followers. We are brothers and sisters of Christ. That's what he says in Matthew 12, verse 50. Whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother or sister and mother. And later, Paul says in Galatians 6, verse 10, Believers are the household of faith. So, church, we're a big family. We're not just learners. We're not just disciples. We are sons and daughters. We are the members of God's household. If they insult the head of the household, they're going to insult you. So, Jesus is saying, acknowledge your position. You're not above your master. But this is something even more encouraging about our position in Jesus Christ. And we rejoice in our position, and then we respond to opposition accordingly. Criticism accompanies everyone who follows Jesus Christ. But let me remind you of your great position in Him. In Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, this is what the Bible says. You are blessed, my friend, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You are in Christ. That is your position. If you're a believer in Christ, in verse 4, furthermore, Scripture says you are chosen in Him before the foundation of the world, predestined to adoption as sons and daughters, verse 5. And in verse 12, it says we are sealed in Him. Again, that's the common denominator. Him. We are in Him, sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of the promise. So we are not above Christ. We are in Him, and He is in us. The Bible says Christ in us is the hope of glory. Therefore, we should consider it an honor to be opposed, to be insulted, to be criticized, and to be persecuted because of Him. In fact, I'll tell you this, church, mature, godly spiritual leaders do not panic when they receive insults and betrayals, but they consider them an opportunity to be like Christ, to identify with our Master. The disciples seem to have learned that lesson. According to Luke, in Acts 5, verse 41, they rejoiced that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. And as a result, God used their testimony to mature other people, including you, you and me. We're reading their works. These giants of the faith were ordinary people like you and me that God called for extraordinary service, extraordinary ministry. And they have acknowledged their position. They're not above Christ. They are in Christ. So church, the more you pursue Christ-likeness, the more mature you will be, and the more the world will hate you. Why? Because the world hated Christ. 
So we shouldn't expect to be popular for being Christians. We shouldn't expect to have success according to the world. We don't need that. We need to be like Christ. Why? Because he says it is enough for you to be like your master. It is enough for you to be like me. So therefore, that is our goal, church. And the way towards maturity is to acknowledge our position in Christ and rejoice in it. Well, here's the second principle. Acknowledge your position, first of all. Second, appreciate your preparation. That's in verse 26 through 31. Jesus is training his disciples. He is preparing them for ministry here. And he teaches them to deal with a very common human emotion, very common human response to danger and unknown circumstances. That is why he says, do not fear. Three times in those short verses. Three times he says, do not fear. Do not be afraid. Now, how often does Jesus have to say something for us to trust him, church? Only once. And here he says three times, Do not fear. In other words, don't fear this, but fear that. He's saying, let's redirect your fear. Now, he already told them that they would encounter hardship and conflict, specifically in familial loyalties. He says that brother will betray brother because of me. He repeats that same idea later on. Families will be broken up because of me. So that's the conflict and the hardship that we experience as we follow Christ. And that produces fear, of course. But he prepares them by issuing two commands. The first one is, don't fear what people can do to you. We understand the timeless principle here. He says, do not fear people. We have no business fearing people. Why? Because, first of all, he says already, they will do to you what they did to me. You should expect to be treated like me. But second, because it says here, nothing escapes the eyes of the omnipotent and the omniscient God. Not even the secret chambers where people plot evil against followers of Jesus Christ. This is what the author of Hebrews says concerning this attribute of God. Hebrews 4 verse 13, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we must answer. Now, Jesus already started to unmask the Pharisees in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember that he's already started to reveal their real motives. So Jesus says, Do not fear them because... I know everything, my Father knows everything, and in time, we will vindicate you. That is what he's saying. God always exposes, church, and we need to understand this, God always exposes wrong motives. It may take time, but he always exposes wrong motives and also reveals godly intentions. So therefore, you should spend absolutely no time defending yourself to your critics, to the people who oppose you because you're a Christian. Why? Because that would be a distraction of your real mission. Let God take care of that. He will vindicate his servants. So for that reason, Jesus says you should never hesitate to be clear about your message, to be loud and clear about your message. That is the reason why he uses the illustration of shouting from a housetop. What Jesus is saying is this, you should never hesitate to make those announcements concerning the kingdom of heaven because you should never fear what people will do to you. That is your message. That is your mission. Be faithful to that no matter the cost. And they would have understood that very clearly. I'm afraid that many Christians don't pay much attention to these principles. They worry more about reputation preservation than kingdom proclamation. All of us are tempted to do that. Because of the high cost of sharing the faith, many people try to explain away their responsibility to share the faith. And they'll say something like this, and I've heard this before, I don't have the gift of sharing my faith. We pay the pastor to do that, which is a profoundly unbiblical idea. And frankly, it's a pathetic way to explain away and to justify a rebellious heart. Look at verse 28. 
Jesus instructs the disciples to redirect their fear. He says, don't fear people. Don't fear them. Instead, fear someone else. And he reminds them of a couple more truths here. People may destroy the body, but that's their only jurisdiction. People may assassinate your character, but that's all they can do. They can cancel you, but that's all they can do. They have no jurisdiction of your eternal soul. You should be much more concerned about the one who sends people to heaven or hell. The only two options. The body is going to go to the grave. But your immaterial part is going to go to either heaven or hell, depending on whether or not you acknowledge Jesus Christ as your Savior. And Jesus, again, uses a very visual illustration here when he uses the word for hell, Gehenna. That was a location. That was the city dump in Jerusalem where trash would be thrown and there was a fire that would consume all of these things 24-7. So they would understand exactly what he's talking about. And his point is this. The wrath of God is so severe that any punishment inflicted by people should not even compare. You should be more concerned about where you're going when you die and where people around you are going when they die. Because if you're sure that you're going to heaven, what you need to do is tell people, listen, man, I'm concerned about your eternal destiny. Have you thought about where you're going to spend eternity when you die? Because there are only two options according to the Bible. And divine destruction here that Jesus Christ is talking about here does not mean annihilation. Does not mean you will cease to exist because that would actually provide relief for people in hell to cease to exist. It it would put them out of their misery. But the Bible says, no, they will suffer forever in the lake of fire. And the Bible also uses the illustration of the never-dying worm, which is a guilty conscience. Imagine spending eternity with a guilty conscience, thinking, man, I should have received Christ as my Savior. Now I'm suffering here. I wish I had come to a saving knowledge of Christ. What Jesus is saying is this. His disciples needed to understand the holiness of God and the seriousness of the mission. Why? Because they would launch the Christian movement after the resurrection and they would lead the church. These guys would be the leaders of the early church. They needed to have their theology correct. And what he's saying is, you should understand the holiness of God so that compassion for unbelievers would outweigh your instinct for self-preservation. Do we understand that? Our compassion for unbelievers, church, should outweigh our natural instinct for self-preservation. That is maturity. That is Christ-likeness. So if that's true, then I should consider my neighbor's eternal destiny more important than my physical body, than my physical life, my physical comfort. You say, Pastor, I don't know about that, man. That is so countercultural. That is so counterintuitive. And that's right. It is because we learn from an early age to self-preserve. We learn from an early age that we need to fight for our rights, that we need to assert our rights, that we need to think of ourselves first. The Bible says something different. This is what the Bible says, Philippians 2 verse 3, Paul, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility consider one another as more important than yourselves. So if we really want to be like Christ, if we want to really want to mature, we need to understand this, that the eternal destiny of my neighbor who's outside of Christ is more important than my comfort. That is more important than my desire of not being insulted. We should not care about what people are going to talk concerning us and question our motives. If we really understand the holiness of God, we should fear for our unsaved friends and family so much that the risk of being insulted like Christ was should not even cross our minds. Think about this for a moment. What is the primary reason we don't share the gospel with unsaved family and friends? It's not apathy. We care about them. It's because we fear. 
That's the number one reason we don't share the gospel is because we fear what people may think of us. We fear being called fundamentalists. We fear being canceled. We fear being politically incorrect. Therefore, we buy into the lie that says you should not share your faith. But listen to what Solomon says. Proverbs 1 verse 7. And again, he's the wisest man who ever lived apart from Jesus Christ. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all knowledge. So, my friends, if you're looking to grow spiritually and mature, we need to understand this. We need to redirect our fear. We don't fear what people think. We don't fear what people can do to us. We need to fear the Lord. And it doesn't mean we're terrified of coming into the presence of the Lord because He invites us to do that through prayer. What the Bible says is we need to have a reverent, healthy fear of violating His holiness. And we must fear for the people who are outside of Christ so much that we need to go and tell them about Jesus Christ. Now, of course, we don't want to create conflict unnecessarily. And as servants of Christ, we need to understand that as far as it depends on us, we need to have peace with all men. That's what the Bible says, Romans 12, verse 18. But we must draw the line. And that line is draw when it comes to truth. We do not compromise there. And let me quote again to you the words of my hero of the faith, Adrian Rogers, one of them. Quote, I prefer to be divided by the truth than united in error. Look at verse 29. Jesus now comforts the disciples using a very simple illustration meant to communicate not only their need to not fear men, but to fear God and also to turn that fear into trust. That is the purpose of the next illustration here, the imagery of the sparrows that are worth a penny. And this is what he means. Compared to people, sparrows have a relatively low value. These were birds that people would buy to eat, to serve them as finger food. They would fry them. And the Bible says their value is an asarian. That's the Roman copper coin here, represented one-sixteenth of a denarius, a day's wage. So very low in value. And what, what Jesus is saying is, is this. God's sovereign care extends to these cheap creatures. How much more do you think that God cares for you, who is made in the image of God, called upon to have dominion on the earth? Think about that, Jesus is saying. That is another reason you shouldn't fear men, but you should focus your attention on the one who really cares for his image bearers. And he ordains the seemingly insignificant and mundane details of people's lives, illustrated here by the hairs on our heads. The point is, Jesus cares about the seemingly insignificant details of your lives, the ones you don't even think about. He cares so much for you that you shouldn't fear what people can do to you because if he cares for you, he will protect you. For these reasons, we should never fear people. When people rise up against you because you're a follower of Christ, they are messing with the divine property. That's a bad idea. We have no reason to fear what other people can do. If they slander us, they give us an opportunity to be like Christ because they've slandered Christ. If they kill us, we wake up in heaven. What could be better than that? Now, we must not only acknowledge our position and appreciate our preparation, but here's the third item in Jesus' threefold strategy for spiritual maturity here. And then the third and last one, verses 32 through 33. Assimilate his promise. We acknowledge our position, we appreciate our preparation, and now we assimilate his promise. Now he concludes this paragraph here. How do we know that, church? Because he uses the word therefore. That's what the therefore is there for, to conclude what he's talking about. And he concludes this paragraph with a promise, which he frames in the context of a contrast proposition. In other words, verse 32 contrasts verse 33. Why does he do that? 
because the disciples would have been tempted to deny association with Jesus when persecuted came. And that's exactly what happened when Peter denied Christ. Remember Passion Week? Peter denied Christ. Why? Because it feared men. But the good thing is the grace of God is on display here so much, especially in the life of Peter. It's so encouraging. That denial of Peter was not the end of the story for him. That denial was just a learning opportunity, a preparation, if you will, in his maturing. Because later on in Acts 2, verses 14 through 36, the same guy preached a sermon that pierced the hearts of people, proverbially speaking, of course, and they came to Christ. That's the grace of of God. And he makes a promise here that people confess him before men, he would confess them before the Father. The word confessing here in Greek, homologeo, means to speak the same. It means to affirm, to agree with. In other words, when someone confesses Christ, he or she affirms who Christ is and they affirm their allegiance to him publicly. They agree with his self-identification and his ministry as well as his claim on their life. So in other words, when you confess Jesus Christ publicly, what you're saying to the world is this, I belong to him. I agree with what he says in his word that I belong to him. I am his. I agree with him that I am a sinner saved by grace, that if it weren't for the grace of God, my destiny would have been hell. I agree with that. That's what it means to confess Christ publicly. But what we have learned so far is that that confession invites conflict and hardship. Yes, of course it does. That's not a popular notion. It may even sever family ties. Families will be torn apart because of allegiance to Christ. And it happens all over the world in Muslim families, in Mormon families. When people come to the knowledge of the true Christ, there is a conflict that takes place in their family. But Jesus then sheds light into his ministry of mediator between God and men. That's why he's saying this. He's saying, I am your mediator. There is no other person who can mediate between you and God. You need a mediator to get to God. And here he's saying, I am the only way to get to the Father. Therefore, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before the Father. That's what he means. That's what Paul means when he says in 1 Timothy 2, 5, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. That's the mediation of Christ. And that's what he's talking about here. A godly, mature follower of Christ does not fumble with the opportunity to confess publicly his or her allegiance to Christ, no matter the cost. Why, church? Because, think about this, the Bible says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if you have Christ, if your heart is full of Christ, that's what's going to come out of your mouth anyway. But if if you're full of self, if you're full of self-centeredness, all you're going to talk about is you. Or if your heart is in, I don't know, riches or the things of this world, that's what you're going to talk about. But if your heart is filled with Jesus Christ, evangelism is not going to even be a problem for you because you talk about what matters to you. How do you talk about your children? How do you talk about your spouse? You talk about your family because you love your family. Your heart is filled with them. It should be the same thing with your Savior, my friends. You should be motivated by love and gratitude. And a mature disciple fears denying Christ more than he fears men. Listen to what Paul says. Again, how he expresses the sentiment. This is all over Scripture. Romans 1.6, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, he says. But unfortunately, many Christians affirm affiliation with Jesus with their mouths, but deny him with their lifestyle. I've seen this happen many times. I have done it, quite frankly, many times, and so have you. I wonder if that's what caused many unbelievers to say sarcastically this non-prayer. Jesus, save me from your followers. Have you heard this before? I've heard this in sarcasm and in criticism to Christians. Point is, probably none of us here are going to be asked to deny Jesus at gunpoint here in this country. At least not in our lifetime, I don't think. 
although this happens in any other parts of the world, for us, association with him may risk a career, perhaps popularity and notoriety. But if we understand the fear of God, the way Jesus is putting it here, no one around us should doubt who we represent. In other words, people shouldn't be surprised to learn that you're a believer. Is that clear? Now, Jesus does not imply, of course, that God will deny you if you bought your Christian testimony. Who hasn't done that before? That's not what he's saying here. And again, look at the life of Peter for encouragement. But what he's saying is, is we should not base our assurance of salvation on the quote-unquote sinner's prayer or a commitment card that we filled out years ago if these confessions don't really reflect at least the desire in our hearts to reproduce the character of Christ. You understand that? If you claim to be a believer, but you don't have the desire in your heart to reproduce the character of Christ, something doesn't add up. If that's the case, it won't take someone with a sword to get you to deny Christ. All it takes is a crisis. When you go through a crisis, whether global or personal, that crisis has the power of bringing to the surface what's in the hidden chambers of your heart because you need to deal with them. God reveals character during crisis. So church, I ask you, are you like your master? Because if you are, you will pray something like this. Lord, I don't like this situation. Father, I am so done with this crisis. Can you please remove this from my life? Yet, not my will, but your will be done. However long you want me to endure in this, Lord, give me grace. Give me sustaining grace to go through this. And he will. He has never denied that prayer to anybody. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org for more information about our church and this media ministry. We're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth with Grace.